The worldview is basically the way that we see and process uh, the world in which we live in. And I realized this week that we get our worldviews in lots of ways. In fact, my son Grayson, who is four months old, he may or may not be absorbing an interesting worldview because one of the things that gets him to calm down when he's screaming uncontrollably, he has this turtle that lights up blue and plays music. And so uh, the other day, Allie found me standing in front of him in his swing, and I'm holding this turtle in front of him like this, and he's looking up at it, worshiping this turtle, but it calms him down, and so we do it. But, you know, I'm worried that later in life, anytime he sees a blue turtle, he's going to uh, begin to worship and break out into song, uh, get down on his knees. So we may have to uh, tell him the truth about turtles. One day, not today, I mean, we want him to, to, to still worship that turtle and calm down with great reverence. So, worldviews can come in a lot of ways. Uh, lots of times we grow up um, assuming the worldview of our parents, but that doesn't mean that that worldview is necessarily true. And so we'll look today at something of a worldview about worldviews. The reason that we're doing this series, uh, if you're new with us, let me just explain this very quickly before we get into our worldview today. It's not just for knowledge. You will probably learn something new, but we're doing this series for love. Love for whom? For our fellow human beings. Do we love people enough to meet them on their turf? Or do we say, you have to come and start where I'm starting? Do we love them enough to learn to consider how they think, how they see the world, how they hope, how they find meaning, how they discover purpose and significance in their life? Do we love them enough to learn that about them? Do we love them enough to have real, honest, big conversations with them? Do we love them enough to listen well in those conversations? Do we love people enough to share our own perspective when the chance comes? We love them enough even to share the hope that we have in Jesus, if indeed we have hope in Jesus. Now, the worldview that we'll look at today loves the word tolerance, and I believe most of us probably in this room love the word, and we'll see why that is. But here's the deal. Tolerance is not the same as love. Tolerance is not the same as love. If When Grayson is grown, he comes home from college, perhaps, and he says to me, as we're sitting for dinner, hey, mom and dad, I think that I'm in love. I've met a girl. If my response to my son is simply, that's great, that's great, Grayson, whatever makes you happy, and that's the end of it, and I ask him, pass me the cornbread, please, and I ask no other questions of him, If I don't ask, what is this girl like? Why does she make you so happy? What do you see as your future with her? If I never ask, when do I get to meet her? Is that me loving my son? Simply tolerating whatever it is that makes him happy? I don't think so. I think love always pursues further understanding, always pursues common ground, always pursues ownership and participation in the things that the other holds dear. So if you say you love people, but you're completely indifferent to what they care most about, 
what's fundamental, what's core to who they are, what makes them tick, if you care nothing about figuring that stuff out, if you merely tolerate, is it fair to say that you're loving them well? I want you to wrestle with that question. We've been wrestling through it in this series. I believe that truly loving means that we do some of the hard work to learn how other people see the world so we can meet them where they're at, so we can listen well, so they're not having to process at warp speed when we're hearing people talk about the universe in a different way than we do. So while this sermon series may feel a bit like drinking from a fire hose, and I know that it does at times, let me just urge you, pay attention, fight back the distractions, hold off your slumber, Not for the sake of knowledge, but for love. Today we will be looking at postmodernism. Please, out of love, stay attentive. Okay, why don't we pray and then uh, we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for the chance to come and meet together corporately as your church, As the body of Christ, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be here in this room with us today, that anything that is from you, anything that you want to truly sink in uh, to our minds and to our hearts uh, would do so. Anything that's not from you uh, would pass away quickly from our memory. Uh, But we hope out of love that we come to study the way others see the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As always, we've got a lot of work to do, so let's go. Have you ever lied? Raise your hand if you've ever lied. This is a participation. Wow, we have some very holy people in the room. Uh, Come talk to me later. Have you ever thought to yourself, again, participation, I don't think that I said that quite right. Have you ever said that? I'm not sure I said that quite right. Now, one more time. Have you ever watched the news or heard a story of a deed done and you thought to yourself, That's just flat out wrong. Raise your hand if you've ever thought that. Okay. If you answered yes to any of those questions, then in principle, you are denying the very foundation of postmodernism. And we'll see why as we go along. But it seems to me that nearly every person I know would answer yes to at least one of those three, probably all three of those questions, And it seems to be a very uh, common human experience to to realize that you've lied, which is to say not told the truth, or thought, I didn't quite say that right, which is to say, I didn't quite explain that thing, that reality of that thing perfectly, or to see something and think that's just flat out wrong. I think it's a very common human experience. But most people in the city, probably most of us in this room, probably most of us in our generation have an affinity towards the postmodern way of seeing and thinking. Many Christians, in fact, pick and choose when to be postmodern and when to not. But, as we'll see, there is either such a thing as objective truth, or there's not. There can't both be and not be truth, capital T. So, we'll look at why postmodern thinkers say that there's not such a thing as truth, capital T. Postmodernism in itself is not a classic worldview in the same way that the other worldviews that we've looked at are. 
in fact, it's probably better to think of postmodernism as a powerful modifier of other worldviews. So Christians can be postmodern, atheists can be postmodern, deists can be postmodern. So it's not a worldview necessarily in and of itself, but it's a modifier of any worldview. But it's fair to say that probably most postmodern writers and thinkers, the ones that are affecting at the very foundational level people to think this way, are themselves naturalists. And if you weren't here for naturalism, uh, the week on that, this would be people that believe that the physical universe, matter itself, exists eternally and is kind of the, the prime reality. And they would also say that, therefore, God does not exist. That's, that's fair to say that if it's a modifier of worldviews, that's the worldview that most uh, postmodern writers are writing out of. But even if we don't agree that God does not exist, I can assure you, particularly if you're under the age of 45, that you are affected by postmodernism. Have you ever wondered why, if you haven't, wonder with me right now, why our generation is so averse to conversations about big questions and answers to those questions, the questions that matter the most? Have you ever thought why that is? The answer is postmodernism. Have you ever wondered why people say uh, you shouldn't talk about religion at the dinner table? The answer is postmodernism. This is something... This sort of aversion to big conversations, if you've been around, is something that at Sedaris we are passionately pushing back on. We're saying, no, why is that? Why wouldn't we talk about the things that matter most? So we're pushing back on it because we believe that God has created us in his image and he's given human beings an amazing privilege and that privilege is this capacity, this transcendent capacity to sort of think beyond ourselves, to think about the biggest questions, to even consider God himself, but yet we fear this gift. And we were talking in a leadership meeting just yesterday. I think it's a fear of success because if we think and ask and pursue these questions, what if we find out that in fact we've been wrong, that in fact if we're not a Christian, that Christianity is true. Or even if we are a Christian, we don't pursue because what if we find out that we've been wrong? What does this mean for my life going forward? What does it mean for everything that I've done up to this point? And so this fear of success, of actually thinking and considering and coming to conclusions about the things that matter most, leads us away from conversation and thinking about these things. And I don't think that's the right direction. So I need to be honest up front that one of my stated goals in life, this is a personal goal of mine, so of course it filters into what we do as a church, but one of my stated goals is to strike a fatal blow to postmodern thinking, the postmodern ethos, because the postmodern ethos says the examined life is not worth living. We say the opposite. Especially here at Sedaris, we say the examined life, or to use our vernacular, the considered life is the only life worth living. So I've got to push back on it. <laughs> I'm trying to strike a fatal blow. Because postmodernism will teach, we'll see, that truth is dead. And if we buy that, if we believe that truth or, is dead, then Postmodernism, that way of thinking, becomes the great killer of conversation, which we cannot have here, or else I gotta stop talking the way I do. So, fair warning, 
I will probably be a little bit more aggressive today than I've been other weeks. But I think it's okay. So what is postmodernism? Why do I say it's the great killer of conversation? Let's try to figure this out. And like always, we've got to do a little bit of background work, stay attentive and focused, but you have to understand where these ideas came from in order to see how they do not line up with a Christian understanding. And if we really want to understand people that think this way, we have to kind of do some of the dirty work. So here we go. In the history of ideas, over the last 400 years, there have been two great shifts in thinking, okay? And it's been a shift in thinking about what is the first thing? What's, what are the first things in life, okay? And the shift went from being, that's the pre-modern notion of the world. This was basically from the 1600s and before. We call this pre-modern thinking. And then it went from being was the first thing to knowing was the first thing. That happened with Rene Descartes. That shift really changed the way that people, people pursued knowledge. Knowing was now the first thing. And that lasted for several hundred years until a guy by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche came along. And he changed it from knowing being the first thing to constructing meaning was the first thing. So it was pre-modern and then the modern way of thinking with the Enlightenment, and then came postmodernism. That really, you heard the first grumblings of that with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And it was all about what is, what is the first thing? Now, pre modern people said it's being. Being is the first thing, because everyone agreed in the Western world that there was a God and that He had created, and if He exists and He creates us to exist, then we know for sure that we exist. So, being was the first thing, and we looked to God for revelation to tell us about the things that mattered most. That was the pre modern way. Well, now people started to rumble around and ask questions. Skepticism began to grow, and there was a Christian man who was trying to fight for Christianity. And his name, as I said, was Rene Descartes. And he was trying to out-doubt the doubters. And he was uh, so successful in this that he was able to doubt everything about what we could know and what was true in the world, except for one thing, that he himself was doubting. And so I don't know if you've ever heard the great classic saying, I think, therefore, I am. Have you heard that? That was Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. So he could not be sure of anything except that he was a thinking thing. You see, now what is the first thing? The first thing is thinking and knowing. That is modernism. And in modernism, the human mind and reason became king. And for hundreds of years, that was sort of the way we went. And lots of good happened. This is why science exploded, because we really had optimism about the human mind and human reason. But you know what happened? Turns out we can't know everything just through human reason. And so the next sort of group of philosophers began to say, I don't think all this optimism was really working out like we thought. And at the end of the 19th century, people began to question, is the modern, modernist project really living up to everything that it promises? And they, of course, answered no. And they said, you know what? We can't be sure about anything that we know. All we can be sure about is that we, through our language, are constructing meaning about what we think the world actually is. So it went from being, revelation from God, to knowing the human mind and reason, to the postmodern world, which said actually constructing our own meaning through our own language is the way forward. 
Let me give you an example of this. Pre-moderns, the example is justice. How do we know justice? Pre-moderns would say justice or just society is a society based on what? The revelation of God. He tells us what's just. Moderns would modify this and they would say, no, justice is discovered by using our universal human reason to uncover. There's this idea of discovery or uncovering and knowing, therefore, what justice is, applying it through reason to our society. Then postmoderns came along and they said, no, we actually have no access to justice as justice as a thing outside of itself, and they would say this, there is no universal standard for justice which is revealed or found. Rather, justice is what we construct or decide that it is to be for our specific communities. It is known as true through the language we all agree to use. Is that kind of tracking the way these shifts happened? Now, you might be sitting here and you're like, well, surely the last one is correct, right? Well, that's because postmodernism is all around us. So we've been doing these eight questions. Those are also in your bulletin about each worldview. And we won't go through all of them with postmodernism because, like I said, it's not a worldview in the same way as all of them. But we will look at a couple of the questions. But before we do that, we must look at a pre-question that other worldviews don't necessarily ask. And it's a question... Uh, a worldview question about worldviews. Because of this shift that we saw in first things, we've got to ask this question. We don't start like we would in other worldviews, what's the prime reality? We wouldn't even start with what is the material world? What is the essence of it? Instead, we start with question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? And the reason we skip all the way to knowing anything at all is because we actually believe, if we're postmodern, that we have no access to the answers for question one or question two. We can't actually know what the prime reality is. We can't actually know what the universe is really made of. Instead, we're looking, and this word will come up again, we're looking for pragmatic truth, which is how do we move forward knowing what we can know and living a useful life. So, worldview question five, why is it possible to know anything at all? Postmoderns would answer it this way. Truth about reality itself is, like I said, forever hidden from us. So all we can do is tell stories. All we can do is tell stories. Richard Rorty would say this. He's a postmodern thinker writer. The world does not speak, only we do. See what he's saying? The world is not speaking to us and all we have to do is listen We're the only ones that speak, and we speak onto the world. Nietzsche said this, The language we use to tell our stories is a mobile army of metaphors. A mobile army of metaphors. So even when we say things like, the fact is, Nietzsche would say that's just a metaphor because we don't actually know what the thing is. We just use our language. All language is but a metaphor. And we tell our stories. Now, to be fair, we still talk about the world as if it weren't that way. We have to, because we're human beings. So they would say, yeah, we still believe that reality exists. They wouldn't say that everything is an illusion. They'd say we speak of it because we have to, but we're just telling stories. We're not talking about truth here. We're not talking about fact-telling. We're talking about story-telling. Moderns and pre-moderns would talk about truth-telling. 
Postmoderns talk about storytelling. And these stories are important because they're useful. So we would still say if we see a bus coming down the street and our friend is in the street, we would still say, hey, there's a bus and it's coming down the street, so we still use language because that's incredibly useful if you're standing in the path of a bus to know it's coming down the street. But what we mean by a bus, we can't be that sure about what a bus actually is. And we can't really know what standing in the street really means. We just know it's useful to tell the story to our friend. You might want to step out of the street. So stories are okay, but postmodernists would say, but what's not okay is what we call meta-narratives. And a meta-narrative is, you could think of it like a master story, okay? Stories are good as long as they remain self-contained for us in our little community or us as an individual. But as soon as you start telling a master story or a meta-narrative, which is to say a story that encompasses all other stories, then we've got a problem. As soon as you start using the language of this story applies to everyone and not just to me or to my community, then we've got a problem. That's a meta-narrative. And we must abandon all meta-narratives. Christianity is, of course, a meta-narrative, and we would believe that every valid story must fit underneath the meta-narrative or the master story of God created the universe, he's working to redeem the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. That's a meta-narrative. Now, there's stories, there's real individual community stories that happen within that, but they have to live underneath the master story. Postmodernists would say, absolutely not. In favor of what? Many stories, many narratives, personal stories. These are good. Every mini story is valid, and we should accept every story just as long as we don't tell people that it's a master story. Now, who validates the story? How do we know if a story is valid or not? Well, the community does, or the individual does. As long as that story or that narrative has meaning to the community or the individual, So if there's meaning and and, and the community accepts it as their narrative and they decide to live by it, then we should all validate it, even if we don't accept it as our story. So here's the result. Christians have their story. Buddhists have their story. New Agers have their story. Naturalists have their story. Muslims have their story. We'll study that next week. I've got my friend and... uh, Peer, somebody I went to seminary with who's an expert in Islam coming in from Denver to teach us about that. I'm really excited about that. They are all valid and worthy of respect because they have meaning for their community. You see this? You might be like, yeah. This is obviously true, right? Because we live in a postmodern world. Furthermore, postmoderns would say this. So the reason why we cannot accept and we must abandon every meta-narrative is because meta-narratives, master stories, are in their nature power plays. They're power plays. Any narrative that calls itself a meta-narrative is oppressive, postmodernism would say, because I am trying to tell you, I'm trying to force my story upon you that's oppressive. And anybody who wins the day with their story then has the power. So they say, we cannot, we cannot allow meta narratives into our world. 
And therefore, if there are no meta-narratives, there is no truth per se. Truth then becomes relative to what I decide, how it fits into my story. Truth becomes very individual or community-focused. There's no such thing as capital T, truth. Truth is dead. So we can't talk about that. We can't talk about truth anymore in the way we used to. Sounds good, right? Sounds really good to our ears because it sounds humble, right? I can't force my story on anybody. Sounds humble, right? I want us to be exceedingly weary of sounds good, right? Sounds humble, right? Because postmodern narrative tells us to be weary of everybody else who's trying to, to sell a meta-narrative or a master story, except who? Them. They say, we're the ones that have figured out how all stories work, how they work in communities, how it's best to distribute them, how we shouldn't have master stories. We've got it figured out. Their narrative is in itself a meta-narrative. About what? All other narratives. Well, you can't have it both ways. That sounds like a power play. See how this kills conversation? Do you see how if this is true that we can't or we shouldn't talk about our stories in a, in a master story way? Do you see how this kills conversation? You see if we talk about truth but we can't use truth in the way that it used to be thought of. We can only use truth as if it's true for me and my story. You see how this kills conversation? Because now I can't talk to you about things like God. Because if it's not already a part of your story, then it will never be a part of your story unless you choose to change it. So I shouldn't talk about it. I shouldn't talk about the things that matter the most that are foundational to my story because that would be oppressive. And we've bought that. I've bought that. I mean, I am affected by postmodernism like you wouldn't believe. You say, Dave, you started a church. Yeah. And I still have a hard time inviting people into this conversation because I have bought that it's oppressive. Now let me tell you why it's not oppressive. Remember my son Grayson? Remember the blue turtles? If he honestly grew up believing that blue turtles were God, would it be oppressive of me to tell him, actually, son, I used to tell you that story about turtles or I used to hold the turtle up Not because it was God, but because it distracted you and helped you fall asleep. But if I just let him believe that blue turtles were the creator of the world, I don't think I'd be a very loving dad. Wrestle with this stuff. Is it really oppressive to talk about your master story and to talk about it in terms that it applies to them even if they don't already accept it as true? Is that inherently oppressive? Or might it even be loving? So that's kind of the big shebang when it comes to postmodernism. Stories for communities, no meta-narratives. And here's how it plays out. No truth. Question three, worldview question three asks, then what is a human being? Postmoderns would answer it this way. There is no substantial self. Human beings make themselves who they are by the language that they construct about themselves. Does this sound like any other worldview that we studied? If you were here with us, 
This is existentialism, but with a twist. Existentialism says we are nothing in ourselves. We make ourselves through the action that we take. So action helps us become what we are. That's existentialism. Now, this is what's interesting about postmodernism. They would say it's not our action that we take. It's the language that we choose to speak of ourselves with. So it's our language that makes us. Not God who makes us. Not our action as existentials make, but our own chosen language that makes us who we are. And so uh, some postmodernist writers would talk about we have these in human history these strong poets and what what he means by this strong poets these would be guys like Sigmund Freud Charles Darwin they come up with these terms that then we all accept Freud came up with terms like the ego and the super ego Darwin survival of the fittest language that we all sort of use and understand because they are the strong poets that infuse their language into our understanding of who we are as human beings. They sort of write the script or the definition of what a man is because the man in himself is not substantial. He's not anything because we don't have access to that category, so we create and construct our definition. One postmodernist writer said this, humanity is nothing more than a fiction composed by the modern human sciences. So we think we know what we are only because we've decided to use these terms to describe ourselves. Okay, clear as mud, right? Good. Worldview question six. How do we know what's right or wrong, good and evil? They would say ethics, like knowledge, is a linguistic construct. We use our language to describe it. So social good is whatever a given society takes it to be. This leads to radical ethical relativism. This leads in uh, the art. Art and beauty are completely relative. We decide what's beautiful. There's not some sort of transcendent definition of beauty. Literature, this means that the meaning of any book or story written is up to the reader more than it is up to the original author. We make the meaning through our reading of it. And so the greatest good is an individual's freedom to maximize his or her own pleasure. One postmodern writer even agonizes over, because it, he's, he's so committed to his worldview, he agonizes over whether or not rape should be regulated by the justice system. Because who are we to tell people how they should or shouldn't pursue pleasure? That's radical. I'm not saying every postmodern thinks that, but this thinker is trying to be consistent with his own worldview. So, finally, worldview question eight says, what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with a postmodern worldview? James Sire in his book writes this, postmodernism is in constant flux. Postmodernists are committed to an endless stream of, quote, whatevers. I don't remember when I started using the word whatever, but it was at a very young age. And I don't know why I started using it. But I said whatever a lot growing up. (laughs) Maybe that's just me. 
whatever. Okay. So what makes this so attractive? What makes postmodernism so attractive? Why is it in, I mean, it's everywhere. When, when we talk about these worldviews, I want us to be, hopefully when you watch a commercial, when you watch a movie, when you read a book or a newspaper article, you listen to a speech, a podcast, whatever it is, you're probably going to see this stuff now that you have language for it. But why is it so attractive? Why is it everywhere? Well, it validates every story. Everyone's story is validated. And there's something good about validating people, telling them they have value. We would agree with that as a Christian, so that's very attractive. Every story is validated. And how are meta-narratives or narratives, worldviews, judged? As long as the narrative gives the beholder of the narrative what he or she wants, then it's judged positively. Does my narrative or story satisfy me? That's how all meta-narratives or narratives are judged. So how is my narrative, my worldview judged? Does it give me what I want? Man, that, that feels good. That sounds good. I like that. If it gives me what I want, if I want peace and it gives me peace, if I want order and it gives me order, then that's good. And so lots of times you'll see, I mean, most people, you know, most people I talk to when they find out I'm a pastor, they say, that's great for you. I'm so glad that you found something that gives you meaning, something that you feel purposeful. They're just speaking postmodern language. And I know why they're saying it. They don't have another way to think. It's just a part of our society. We don't need to examine our own worldviews or narratives anymore as long as they give us what we need. We don't need to consider them deeply. We don't need to talk about them as long as they're giving us what we need, what we desire. So it's very attractive. But there's some rubs, aren't there? There's always rubs. I always talk about these three rubs, the logical rub, scriptural rub, and the gospel rub. And why do I talk about these three? God's given us a mind. He wants us to use our minds. He wants us to use the laws of logic that are at work in the world. He wants us to use our reason that he's given us. So we want to look. Is there any logical rubs to these worldviews? He's given us scripture. He's communicated his truth to us through his word. Does what the postmoderns are saying match up to what God says? So he's given us scripture. Let's use it. And he's given us the gospel. It's been proclaimed to us. We've received it. Does... God's story of salvation through his son Jesus Christ, does that rub up against a postmodern view of salvation or liberation? So we're going to look at all three of those and we're going to go real fast. So, number one, logical rub. Ask yourself these, there are a lot of logical rubs with postmodernism, so I'm going to give you a few, maybe jot them down and think about them. I'm going to give you six questions to ask yourself. I'm going to answer them, but... I want you to think about them, even though I'm giving you answers, okay? Number one, is it true that no story can have more credibility than any other story? Is it true that no story can have more credibility than any other story? If you read uh, my my emails, now's the time. J-E-L-L-O. Jello. If I tell you 
My story is that the world is made of jello and that Bill Cosby. Now, I realized when I wrote this, many of you might be too young to know that Bill Cosby was the spokesperson for jello for pretty much my whole childhood. It's jello. And um, <laughs> I tried to practice that, I couldn't do it. Okay. If I told you the world is made of jello and Bill Cosby's the creator, and I was convinced of it, and every fall, winter, and spring, the reason that the colors change and the leaves change is because Bill Cosby is adding food coloring packets to the jello. If I articulated this and I accepted it as true, it had meaning for me, it gave me order, it gave me what I wanted, if you're truly postmodern, you must look me in the eye and you must tell me, Great, I'm glad that works for you. But is that narrative more credible than a naturalist narrative or an existentialist narrative or a Buddhist narrative? Or is there such a thing as being off your rocker? Ask yourself that. Question two, is it true that there is no absolute truth? There is no statement that can be made that's absolutely true all of the time. Is that a true statement? Well, it can't be if all statements are only subjectively true. You see what's happening here? It says a self-refuting argument. You can't have it both ways. Either there's nothing that's objectively true or... There are things that are objectively true, and you can't make a statement claiming to be true all the time about all statements never being true. It's a contradiction, self-refuting. Question three. Is the postmodern description of how meta-narratives function in a community true? Is their description true, that there are no meta-narratives? We already talked about this. That can only be true if... This meta-narrative, postmodernism, is functioning as a meta-narrative. Again, self-refuting. Question four. Is it true that language is incapable of making objective truth claims? I don't know if we picked this up when you're talking. Postmodernists just say, language is limited. It cannot access objective truth because it's man-made, it's language. Now, is that true? If it's true, again... This statement can't be true because it's not accessing something that's objectively true outside of itself. The language of our language can't is itself flawed. Again, self-refuting. Five, is it true that a thing is whatever I say it is? See these keys here? I call them keys. But I was walking through the library as I was doing my prep. Nobody's in the library. I sometimes study at SPU. And nobody studies at SPU when school's not in. Imagine that. It's dead quiet in there. And I'm walking through the library, and I'm tossing my keys up in the air. You hear that? Man, that's a nice jingle. And I'm thinking to myself, these keys would make great, a great wind chime, you know? And I'm, I'm obviously not accomplishing much in my sermon prep, but I'm doing this, you know? So I'm tossing it up. Wind chime. Are these wind chimes? Now, some people use them as a fashion accessory. Have you seen this? Have you seen the kids these days? They wear it on the hip like this. Just admit it. If you do this, raise your hand. Nothing wrong with it. I just, okay, yeah, okay. All right. 
are these a fashion accessory? You know what Grayson uses these for? A rattle. Are these a rattle? What are these? Are these something in and of themselves? Now, I'm not saying that something can't have alternative meanings or can't have alternative uses. But if we're honest, these are car keys. And they were designed, not all of them are car keys, but the main key on here is a car key. And it was designed to start my car. That's what this is. More than anything else, this is a car key. It's not a rattle, it's not a wind chime, it's not a fashion accessory. And to say that this is a car key, even to say it might be used by some people in another way, is, I think, to affirm that there is meaning objectively to certain things. Not everything is subjective. So to affirm, now this is important, to affirm something has objective truth is not necessarily to denigrate other subjective truths about the same thing. I think sometimes we think that, which is why we're so reluctant to use objective truth claims. Maybe that made sense, maybe it didn't. Number six. Is it true that there is no such thing as, an, as objective good or obje- objective evil? No one really wants to believe this. I guarantee it. Nobody wants to believe this, but you have to if you want to be consistent with postmodernism. If there's no objective standard in the world, then you know what happens? Might makes right. John Piper writes this. If there is no objective standard, then the simplest peasant in Russia or the simplest Jew in Germany, the simplest slave in Georgia or the simplest Christian prisoner in Rome can say... Sorry. If there is objective truth objective standard, then each of those people can say to the most powerful Stalin, the most powerful Hitler, the most powerful plantation owner, or the most powerful Caesar, excuse me, no sir, that is wrong. Your power does not make it right. And Christians would say there is a God above you and there is a right and wrong outside of you Your might, your power does not make it right. God defines objective truth, objective good, objective evil. Anything that honors God and helps others is good. Anything that dishonors God and hurts others is evil. And he calls us to conform our emotions to this reality. I pray that that is true. No one really wants the postmodern view of good and evil to be true. Because then, honestly, who are we to say something like rape is wrong? Those are the logical rubs. Scriptural rub. Now, I'm going to, to bring us to a passage of Scripture. If you've got a Bible, take it out. Open to the very beginning to Genesis chapter 3. It's right at the beginning of your Bible. Uh, Only a few pages in. If you've got your phone, feel free to pull it up on your phone. There's also Bibles at the end of the rows if you don't have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those Bibles home with you. It's a gift from us to you. We're going to look at what God says 
And we're going to see a very interesting passage here that I think highlights the distinction that you see in postmodern thinking versus, for instance, pre-modern thinking or Christian thinking. And that's the difference between pragmatic truth and correspondent truth. Pragmatic truth is postmodern truth saying something's only true if it's helpful or it's useful. We can't know if it's true in all circumstances at all time in the same way. Correspondent truth is a Christian idea of truth which says there is something that I am trying to describe with my truth claim outside of the claim itself. And if, when I'm describing, my description corresponds to the thing in itself, then I've made a truth claim. So there's something. So, now that's not to say that language is perfect or that everybody who speaks with truth claims is actually making correspondent truth claims. It's just to say that kind of claim is out there. So that's the big rub between Christianity and postmodernism is we believe that there is truth that corresponds to a reality outside of our language, which is to say, for instance, just because Grayson can't say dog doesn't mean that there's not a dog licking his face. He knows that there is. He just doesn't have the language because the dog exists apart from his language. So correspondent truth. So look at this. Genesis 3, 1. And it all went wrong right here because of this idea. Genesis 3, verse 1 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What is the serpent, who we find out later in Scripture, is the adversary? What is he saying here? He's questioning the story God has told the man and the woman. He's saying, are you sure his story that he gave you is always true? He's questioning God's narrative. And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God's made a truth claim about this particular tree. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God's narrative is not true all the time for all people. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, look at this, pragmatic truth, she saw that the tree was good and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Look what happened. The serpent offers up pragmatic truth. Listen, God knows when you eat it, Right away, something will happen to you. You'll have a new kind of power, a power to decide for yourself what's good and evil. God doesn't deserve all that power, does he? That's actually a pragmatic truth, because what does it say? Their eyes were actually opened. But what was God's objective truth that he told them? A kind of death will happen. A kind of death will happen if you do that. That's objectively true all the time, even though the pragmatic truth for that moment, came true. Now here is the deceptive power of pragmatic truth. It's not to say that it doesn't work. Pragmatic truth often works in the moment. 
and it worked for Adam and Eve. But to accept pragmatic truth at the expense of objective truth is to do a damage far greater than any good that comes of it. Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened. They now became what? Their own judges, their own decision makers, their own truth tellers, instead of what? Trusting in God's communication to them about what is good and right and advantageous. We often miss that with this story. The reason God didn't want them to have their eyes open was not because God was trying to keep them in the dark. It's because God wanted them to come to him for truth. Because what? He cares about the relationship with them. When their eyes were opened, now they didn't need God to see right or wrong. And as the story goes on, their decision to circumvent God, take him out of the loop, ultimately led to their separation from God, which is a kind of spiritual death, which eventually led to their physical death, which was never a part of God's plan. And it all came because they wanted the power that was always intended for God. Not because God is trying to keep something from them, but because he wants them to go through him to find truth. It's the same temptation we have today. Why do we have to go to a transcendent God to get truth? Why can't we just create it for ourselves? Why don't we just get to decide? It's the same temptation. We choose pragmatic truth, if it's useful for us, over objective truth, which comes from God. That's a deceptive power. And it's happening day in and day out. To Christian, to non-Christian alike. Who will you trust for your truth? Yourself or God? Which brings us to the gospel rub. How does postmodernism promise salvation? They say we will save you from the oppression of power plays by meta-narrative casters. Guys like Dave. We'll get you away from guys like Dave who are claiming that things are true for all people at all times in the same way. Salvation from religious thinkers, idealists, even scientists who are trying to say that things are true all the time in the same way. Anybody that's trying to oppress you by telling you about meta-narratives will liberate you from that by convincing you that there's no such thing as objective truth. You get to become autonomous in your decision-making. Untethered. I like that. Liberation. Here's the problem. Postmodern thinking rightly realized that modernism was on the wrong path. Think about driving directions. Have you ever been driving somewhere and you're thinking to yourself, you're looking at your you know, Waze or Google Maps or whatever you use, and you're like, I'm not sure that's the right way to go. And so what do you do? You decide... I need to make a change, right? I had a buddy named Drew who was the worst at this. I used to call them Drew Cuts. They always added 15 to 20 minutes <laughs> to the trip. But they were creative ways to get to a place. But we have this tendency. We realize we're on the wrong track. And postmodernists, they got it right. Modernism was on the wrong path. We had put too much faith in human reason alone to determine truth and to know truth. And so they said, we need to take a turn. But here's the problem. Instead of taking a U-turn and heading back to where they came from, which is revelation from God, the objective truth giver, they decided to take a left. 
And you know what? They got even more lost than the moderns were. Their left took them to a place that was even further off the map. And it was further off the map because where moderns put too much optimism and human reason, postmoderns didn't put less optimism. They gave more control. They were more optimistic about the ability of human beings to decide for themselves not just what was true and not true, but what story encompassed all of that truth. They, they thought they were being less optimistic about one thing, truth, objective truths, which they were, but they became more optimistic about human beings' ability to figure it all out on their own. They're headed in the wrong direction. So as I was preparing for the sermon, I asked my wife, what do you think we need salvation from? Is it what the postmoderns say, people who use meta-narratives? She, I didn't say that, I just asked her. <laughs> what do we need salvation from? Here's what she said. Pride, jealousy, anger, disobedience, unfaithfulness, envy, bitterness, laziness, gluttony, and doubt. Now you weren't talking about me, right, honey? <laughs> she said, no, people in general. And you're a person, so there we go. Notice what's not in my wife's list. My job, my government, my mother-in-law, my parents' ideas. What does every one of my wife's categories that we need salvation from have in common? None of them are something outside of ourself. My wife is full of the gospel because she knows that what the gospel teaches is not salvation from some external force. What we need salvation from is ourselves. That's what the gospel teaches us. Adam and Eve didn't need salvation from the serpent. They needed salvation from themselves. The fundamental proposition of the gospel is not that we need saving from some outside force some liberation from some government or some oppressive force. What we need liberation from is ourself. We need saving from ourself. Our prayer should be, Lord, save me from myself. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we pray, Lord, save me from myself. Give me Jesus, who is my divine language. Perfect language. The Word became flesh. We say, Lord, save me from myself. Give me Jesus, my divine logic fixes my improper, imperfect reasoning. Lord, save me from myself. Give me Jesus. He becomes my divine life. We need to be saved from ourselves. That's what we really need. And the only way to do it is by getting Jesus. Don't trust me don't trust the church at large. Don't trust your parents, the guy on TV, a random stranger on the street. You trust God who sent his son to die 
on the cross in your place and he rose again, you trust him, his meta-narrative, his master story, his all-encompassing plan that our individual stories fit under perfectly if we allow ourselves to be connected to Jesus. Do you trust God? That's the question. Nietzsche famously said, God is dead because truth is dead. That's the cry of our postmodern world. But it's not the first time that someone's claimed that they've killed God. There was another time that they thought God was dead. But three days later, he rose. I do not believe that truth in our culture, that God in our culture, is dead beyond resurrection. But you know what we need to do? We need to give it some CPR. We need to give breath to the idea of absolute, objective truth that comes from God. We need to give breath to that. We need to speak breath into our city because our city no longer has the air to use those kind of terms. So we speak about truth early and often unapologetically but but compassionately because it is not dead. So we give it the breath that it needs to be reborn. And we need to give some violent blows to the chest. Not physically. Don't go out karate kidding people. But we need to be passionate people for Christ because people need to be woken up. They're not going to find life, the life that's in Jesus, through just reading a book or impassionate discourse or watching something on TV. They're going to get the life of Christ that jolts them back from the dead, that jolts the idea of God and truth back from the dead through authentic relationships and conversations with people of God who are full of the Spirit. That's what they need. We'll give truth breath and we'll give it the defibrillator. We'll jolt this, you know. We'll jolt it. Will you join me? Will you join me in giving CPR to the city to bring life back to truth and back to those who falsely believe that God and truth are dead? Will you join me? If you're not a Christian, if you're still considering whether or not God is alive or dead, I would just pray that you would get into conversation with somebody that you trust and ask them the big questions. Ask them, is God alive. Let's pray.